Welcome back. This is Pastor Joseph Ann. Hey, I'm Pastor Jair. Welcome back, guys. Thanks for joining us today. We are continuing a fun conversation on the coddling of the American mind. This is the third part in our series. Um, if you haven't read the book, you don't have to because you can listen to us That's right. banter about it. Or you can read the book and hate it and let us know. Um, but we do want some form of an interaction outside of listening. And thank you for listening because we know that's special. Mm -hmm. um, but today we're looking at the third part of the book, um, part three. How did we get here? Um, this section of the book, um, as the title would state, focuses not on how we got here in the book, um, but how do we get to a place where good intentions um, led to bad relationships, bad understandings, and bad outcomes. Um, the, the main um, topics in this section of the book are the polarization cycle, anxiety and depression, paranoid parenting, the decline of play, the bureaucracy of safetyism, and last, the quest for justice. Now, you picked this book, brother, uh, mm -hmm. and you've kicked us off a couple times on this topic. Where do you want to go with how do we get here? The thing that's most natural for me as I look at, at this is I, as when I read the book, what really stood out to me was the paranoid parenting. You know, mm -hmm. We could talk about helicopter parenting. We've been talking about it for a while now. As this is, <laughs> <clears throat> and as I've been reflecting on my life, I, I see the changes. Um, and we've talked about this, you and I, between the way that when I was growing up, the way that I did things, whether it was wearing bike helmets or, you know, knee pads for going rollerblading or whatever that might be, how free I was in my community, mm -hmm. uh, as different from the way that I naturally raise my kids. Um, and there's two things there. There's paranoid parenting and there's the decline of play. Right. Those now, are I've the done two a lot big of, ones for me. They, they are. And you and I have talked about this with David on the monkey bars. <clears throat> these are very um trying to come up with a word i haven't used before but i'm not going to so <laughs> these are very pressing <laughs> for me because my kids are young you know and i'm okay. i'm still unpacking problems in my thinking as a father mm -hmm. and evaluating how well the my, my tactics are aligning with my objectives as my objectives are to raise healthy, strong, capable kids who can mm -hmm. walk in a world that is dangerous, that does have risks, where they will get hurt in a way that is good and caring mm -hmm. for others. Um, so that's kind of that's where my mind has been as I think about these things. You know, I. So. I guess a part of here is, you know, we, because we've already talked about it, I don't want to really roll through this water again, but we've talked about um, just how much freedom we had as kids mm -hmm. and the impulse that we had. But it made me think about a, it made me think about an experience I had in 1998, 99, 
It was 1999. Mm. There was a, um, I was dating a girl in the northern part of our state. And there was an escape from a prison, from a max security prison, of a guy who was convicted of murder. And he was last seen in the area where my girlfriend at that time and her family lived. And when I would go and visit with her and her family, as we would drive around, especially at night, um, number one, it was a topic of conversation among most of the people that you ran into. And number two, when you walked up to a friend's house, when you were scheduled to go to a friend's house and you would walk up to the door, you did so with the knowledge that there was most likely a shotgun trained in your general direction or ready to be at a moment's notice until there was a positive identification made visually of who was coming up the driveway. Sounds like a very happy place. Well, you know, it was a happy place, but it was not a happy time. <laughs> it was it was a stressful time. It was a it was a time of um paranoia, you know, and paranoia mm-hmm. can be rightly earned or it can be wrongly earned. Um, and, and obviously it happens in, in levels. I think this is a rightly earned paranoia mm-hmm. that hit an unreasonable level. Cause as I was thinking about it, I'm thinking, okay, so what's going to happen? This guy's who's convicted of murder. He, he's just not going to go on a murder spree. I mean, is this like a serial? What, why do I have these, these ideas of the danger that I'm in as being significantly heightened from where it was a month ago? When the only thing that's changed is that I now know for a fact that there's someone who has done bad things to people somewhere in my area, as opposed to the reality that there are, statistically speaking, always going to be a number of people who have done bad things to people, not only in my area, but very close to me. Why does the awareness of the reality push me to a point of this overabundant defensive posture. I had to scratch my head at that and say, this, this doesn't seem, there's something out of balance here. Mm-hmm. And I saw it then. And as I, as I was reading the book here and looking at my own parenting now and comparing it to, you know, the hours I, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I'd go on bike rides with my older brother. This was pre cell phones there there were the car phones there were the bricks occasionally you know yes, if you, the ones if in you the knew big... a guy with a beamer yeah yes <laughs> the whole bag you know you go over your or shoulder the ones that took over the whole armrest exactly um that that was that was pretty cool by the way when someone was on a, <laughs> on a phone call in their car on speakerphone while they were driving listening to some journey or something but we used to go for bike rides and we'd go for hours i mean two three four hours just go. We didn't take, if we took water with us, it was like one bottle of water. We didn't take money for pay phones. Um, I'm assuming that most people listening remember pay phones. This is how you got in touch with people when you, uh, before you had a cell phone, you stop into a 7 Eleven, drop a quarter into a slot, and try to remember the, the number of the person you're trying to call. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that was, that was the life I lived. You know, it was check-in before you leave, check-in when you get home. And if you have a problem, they've given you the tools. We're trusting to go out to be able to use the tools that we know you've already developed. Because if you haven't, we're not going to let you go. 
It kind of boils down to that. The distinction now is I want to make sure you have the tools. So let me let me use a tool for you because this tool is a dangerous tool. Let me let me cut that for you. Let me saw that for you. Let me sand that for you because you can get sand paper dust in your eye. You can get sawdust in your eye. It could cause you to go blind. You could get a corneal abrasion. You might hold the saw wrong. You could make a mistake with the cut. See, you you're cut turning yourself. people off already. <laughs> man, I'm just saying, man. It's it's the the desire to air quote care or the definition of care is one uh, that the book does well to evaluate. The same for the definition of love. Um, it can be viewed as I'm loving you by protecting you. And the more I protect you, the more I love you. Um, that definition is one that assumes you have the ability to protect and control um, as well as it assumes that that is the position that you are to take in the relationship. Um, that's not true when we talk about people who believe in God and understand that there's nothing they can control, even if they do wrap their child in bubble wrap or their spouse or themselves. Um, the definition, again, of attaching safety to love is unhealthy because love requires growth, and therefore um, there must be, I don't want to say risk, but there must be opportunity for mistake. Um, if love never makes it past, I forgive you, then it wasn't really love. Um, right. If love doesn't make it past um, self-sacrifice, it wasn't really love. And so if your definition is centered on you and you alone, then your definition is broken from the beginning. And parenting-wise or loving your mate-wise or loving your neighbor well will all be done in ways that are dysfunctional, that are unhealthy. And that was a huge thing when it came to parenting uh, that the book heightened. And I had seen it as a school teacher as well as a principal, mm. um, where parents wanted the best for their child, but weren't loving their child well. Um, and you saw it in different ways from parents who wanted to spend more time with their kids. And so they traveled um, when their kid needed to be in school. And then you saw it in other ways where parents didn't care for their kids and um, their kids were struggling and felt alone. Um, so I saw both extremes. Both were being presented as love. One overdid it when it came to the safety nature of love, and the other one underdid right. it. If I Psalms 23 is pretty clear. I should feel safe around God. Um, yeah. He is my shepherd. I'm a sheep, but I'm, I'm still allowed to wander because it says that the fields are green and full so I can That's eat right. and enjoy. It doesn't say the fenced-in area is green. <laughs> and no, it, it doesn't fields. say he forces you to the water. It says he, he leads you to the water. Correct. And so when we look at a biblical definition of loving someone um, and guiding them 
it requires giving them space to be honest with themselves and understand who they are. And often as a parent, that requires me to allow my child to take risks or play in ways that um, I wouldn't normally find okay um, if I was solely defining it as, is he safe? Um, I told you the other day I went to the playground um, mm-hmm. to pick up my kid early, um, had to laugh because he literally was just walking up the slide and jumping off. And it's a, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty tall slide. Um, but he wasn't the only one. All the kids, all boys, of course, were up in the air and on everything, everywhere. Um, yeah. They had figured a way to climb the swings and were sitting on top of the swing rails. They were not swinging. They just climbed it. Um, they, were, <laughs> they had climbed the ropes course and, again, not crossed it. They climbed it. And so they're all talking to one another, laughing and, and jumping down and climbing back up because the fun was in the jumping and the climbing. Um, mm-hmm. They have to be able to know what they can do. And if I'm always focused on being safe, then they really don't know what they can do. And they always begin to doubt themselves. And you stated when it came to the bike riding, there wasn't a doubt. And there's so much that is a part of parenting that is also a part of making space for this person to grow. Um, And so we have to be diligent in looking at how our definitions of love are lived out, how our definitions for care are lived out. Um, I think it's love. I think it's also the power or the strength, if you will, because a a part of what I think is is happening here or happened here is that <clears throat> we assume that because we can identify where the risks are and because we can stop or or do some actions ourselves, that we are mitigating the potential danger sufficiently. And once we start down that road, I think it's easy, it becomes easier and easier to believe that if we put the right guardrails in place, we can always make sure that no one goes off the road. Mm. We, if we put the, the, the bumpers up on the bowling alley, we can always make sure we knock down all the balls. Mm-hmm. But the, we simply don't have as much control as we think we do, there's an illusion of control that, that traps us in that, that makes us mm. say, well, if a little bit of control is good, then a little bit more control is probably a little better. And a lot of control is probably a lot better. And the, the problem with this is, is two things. Number one, I think it leads us to a place where we leave the protection of God's hand mm-hmm. and try to control with our hand mistaking ourselves for God in that sense. Mm-hmm. And two, we, we mistake what the, what the goal is. The bureaucracy of safetyism is one of the things that was discussed in, in the, this part three of the book. And I remember in my own life when the idea that safety is paramount or safety first came into my awareness as a as a common thing and 
the more I have looked at it, the more I've had to, you know, I've gone and I've asked people, you know, if you, if, if we just disavow that safety first is the right position, what would we put before safety? And we've talked about this before um, on the podcast, but, you know, we Mm -hmm. both agreed that it really is mission first. Safety is, is important. We, we always keep an eye to safety, but the question that's driving what we're doing and how we're doing it is what are we trying to accomplish? And there are real times when accomplishing the mission and this is big ambition, this is little ambition, this is whatever the real purpose is, means that greater danger must be faced. Mm-hmm. Not just for growth, but for accomplishing. And so there's both aspects. There's the, there's the need to grow, to learn your strength, so that you can then go and accomplish the mission using the strength and the tools that you have honed during this time of learning, experiencing, and playing. That once that becomes lost, there really there's a, a real damage that's done to my understanding of who I am and my ability, which then leads to self doubt and the things that then lead to anxiety and depression. As I look forward and think, well, I, I don't have what it takes to protect myself here. Um, I'm not going to be good enough for X, Y, or Z. And all of this, I think, is really, um, when I think about it in light of what God has put us here to do, Mm -hmm. first and foremost, to glorify him. Second great commandment is the great commission. It's to love God and then love our neighbors. That means carrying the gospel into the world, a world that we've already been told is hostile, not only to the gospel, because it's hostile to God, but it will be hostile to us. If safety is my number one goal, I can't ever achieve the mission that God's called me to. I won't be a partner in what he's doing in and through me. Right. And that, that's where it became really easy for, as I was evaluating this, that's where it became really easy for me to, to see God really does love us. Mm-hmm. He really deeply loves us and he protects us and he provides for us. What he doesn't do is say, and what that means is you're never going to go through pain. You're never going to go through hurt. You're never going to go through harm. What he says is, I will keep you through this. I will be with you in it. And I'm using it to change you and to shape you in the person I've called you to be. Because his goal for us is holiness, not happiness. Happiness flows out of the holiness. His Mm. goal for us is that we would be perfected to be like Christ. His goal is to purify us. And when we look at scripture, what we see is that the discussion of purification is one that oftentimes is described as, um, you know, using hot fire to melt down hard metal to then scrape off the dross and the dirt and then repeat the process or hammer and chisel or saw and chisel or some, some amount of things that clearly denote something dramatic is happening here that can only be described as being 
uncomfortable. And, and circles back to what you've hammered on a lot here is our tendency to look for comfortable mm-hmm. as our primary mode of existence. And at the end of the day, I think you and I are both saying that that's simply incompatible with a life devoted to Christ. I mean, the impact of this on the church, I think, is huge when you look at missions and understand that we're all called to be on mission, not just missionaries. Um, When you understand that part of the mission is for you to love those that are around you, no matter what state you're in, whether you're married or single, you're called to love them in a way that causes them to glorify God more. You're also called to live in a way that follows um, an amazing God. I was talking to a believer this morning, and she asked me if I would love to have a bat phone to God. <laughs> it's a real conversation. Um, I believe you. And, uh, and I told her, I don't think so. Um, I told her, you know, based off of scripture, the conversations people had Austin with God weren't as comforting as we like to think. Um, I reminded her of Job, uh, reminded her of, you know, the burning bush. Uh, uh, so if I had a, you know, a flaming phone or whatever you want to call it, um, I could imagine not um, loving God the way I should because I would view the phone as the answer mm-hmm. as opposed to the relationship. Um, I would probably try to manipulate the phone. Um, you know, I'm just not going to talk to God today <laughs> versus, again, enjoying the relationship with him and knowing that um, my brokenness he sees and knows and expects. Um, right. It's it's gracious when I know that he loves me despite my brokenness and understands my mistake, doesn't want them, but expects them, doesn't desire them, but knows that in the falling down, I can grow in the, you know, building strength. I can help others. If I just had a, you know, a phone, a hotline, um, I'm sure I'd tell people to go to my office and pick up the phone or, (laughs) um, you know, I, I wouldn't take the time to be in relationship with them. And, and to foster that mystery that comes with uh, the love of Christ. Um, that not being able to just say, oh, do this, this, and this, and you're done. But just as Jesus did with the rich and ruler, no, give up the thing that is most prized in your eyes and come follow me. The following is a lot harder now, um, but Jesus stated in the word that there will be many who will follow and not have seen, and their reward will be good in heaven. I desire to experience that as opposed to those who have seen, and it didn't require as much faith. I'm sure for many, they would prefer to see, though. But that the gets idea to the, of 
Go for it. The idea of faith that you're talking about, whether we're talking about Psalm 23 or bowing our knee to Christ as Lord, is it's more than accepting that what God has said is true. It's entrusting ourselves, mind, soul, body, and future into his hands and saying, because I accept that what you said is true about you and about me, I place myself into your care. I place myself under your control. I place myself under your command. And I trust that as you send me out to do what you send me to do, you're going to provide for me from your hand. You're going to guide me by your hand. You will protect me and you will deliver me by your hand. And if I have to say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or with Peter and John, you decide whether it's better for us to obey you or obey God. Yes, our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't know this, we're going to do what he's called us to do. That puts us into a position that is almost always going to not be safe. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis wrote about Aslan um, when Lucy asked the uh, beavers, he's a lion, is he safe? And the beavers laughed and said, he's a lion. (laughs) He's good. (laughs) That's what you're trusting in. He's good. He's good. One of my kids has been really struggling with the idea of eternity. Mm -hmm. This child thinks a lot and is trying to wrap their head around what it means that life goes on day after day and doesn't stop. The child's come to me and my wife several times and said, I'm really struggling. I'm nervous about this. I don't know what it means. And there's no answer I can give the child that's going to satisfy and say, you know, you don't need to worry about that. Just stop having these silly concerns. They're a real concern. It's a real anxiety. It can only be satiated, though, when the child, believing that God is good, entrusts him or herself into God's hands to say, I don't know what it is. I can't control what it will be. But I trust that you'll meet me there and that you're going to go beyond my wildest expectations, as you've said you'll do. That's Mm. a life that can be lived courageously. That's a life that can be lived without regrets. I don't know about you, Dave, but some of the best experiences I've had in my life have also been some of the ones where I have been either realistically Mm -hmm. or very definitely experientially in the greatest risk of harm. I would agree. That that definitely does not exclude getting married, opening myself Uh, up to a person who can see the worst about me. (laughs) That's definitely a dangerous place to be. Being being vulnerable is is not safe. (laughs) It's not. At all. Christ got up on the cross. He was exposed. 
and he died for us. That was not safe. It just wasn't. It wasn't. And so why should I expect to be safe? Why should I expect to be comfortable? You're correct. And that then goes to the first part of what was here in, in part three, the polarization cycle. The only reason that the polarization cycle can continue is because we believe that there's an us and them, not that there's a God in us. Mm. If I live in a world where my foregone conclusion, my starting point is there is us and there is God, he's above, we're below. He says, we take at face value. That doesn't allow me to see you as the one preventing me from having my good. I told you before we got on here that I just read for the first time Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place. Mm -hmm. This is a story that she talks about herself experiencing, not through her experiences primarily, but as she watched her older sister Betsy go through the same experiences. And in almost every case, Betsy's concern was for the Nazis and the Dutch guards who were doing the harm mm. to the Jews and to the rebels. Every time Corey would say something in the book about how she was hoping for the best for the people Corey had in mind, the people who were suffering, her sister Betsy would agree, but it would become very obvious to Corey that Betsy had in mind the people who were enacting the evil she saw their plight, Betsy saw their plight as being worse than the plight of those who were suffering. Mm. That, that's a lack of polarization that is only possible because Betsy was looking through God's eyes mm. at the full picture and saying, no, this is not about Nazis versus Jews. This is about darkened hearts versus God. And that's a very, very fearful place to be. And I don't want anyone to be there because that only ends in your suffering. And the worst suffering that you can cause me to go through ultimately is only going to deliver me into the presence of my heavenly father. Can we as Christians live that? Can we trust God to live that authentically? honestly, boldly, quietly, in the midst of a world that is full of pain and injustice? That's a question to myself. I'm looking at my own video screen right now. That's a question for you, big guy. <laughs> Beautiful, bald man. That could be both of us, by the way. <laughs> there you go. I think we did a good job covering this book. Yeah, this wraps up uh, our first book review. Only took three. Oh, well, we hours. did the other one, a Knock at Midnight, as well. That's true. That's true. It but it good. wasn't as in depth as this review. That's right. But it was. If you want good. more of these, let us know. If you want us to not do these again, yeah, let write us, us know. A letter on a hundred dollar <laughs> bill. So please don't do that again. <laughs> Mercy. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for paying attention. Know that you have a purpose that is so much greater than being safe. And please do not 
Please do not be like the servant who buried his talents in the sand, in the dirt, and then stand before God and say, I was trying to be safe. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't expect a good and well done faithful servant. Like, don't, don't do that. Please. We love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. God bless.